We're in our, um, our Christmas series, our Christmas series, where what we've been doing is we've been looking at the mothers of Christmas, the women that the scriptures point to that are in Jesus's uh, genealogical line. And so we've looked at uh, Tamar, and, um, and we saw how even though she was oppressed by those with authority, um, God used her to bring about uh, the Savior's line. Um, we also looked at, uh, who did we look at? Ruth. We looked at Ruth, and we saw how even though she was an outsider in so many different ways, she was a, uh, a racial outsider, she had no status, and how God still used someone who was a racial outsider, who had no authority, no power, no anything, and how God used her. Today, we're going to look at another woman in Jesus' line, uh, family line. But before we get to her, I want you to know a really important message of Christmas, which is where we're going to go today that what has happened to you in the past is not to be your defining moment. That what, what's gone on in your past doesn't have to dictate what happens in your future. I remember, um, gosh, I remember so many of these moments. Um, I remember being in a class with a teacher, and that teacher being, uh, this particular teacher being uh, in the fourth grade, being really physically brutal to me. And just um, not only uh, being physically brutal, but convincing me that uh, I, was, I was dumb, that I didn't know anything, that I would never become anything. And so, I remember that just kind of sticking with me for a long time. I know, I know that those of you within the sound of my voice have had moments like that. Maybe, maybe for you it wasn't just physical abuse. Maybe it was sexual abuse. And the kind of, and the kind of thing that was happening in your home was soul-scarring. And you pretty much have led your life by following that past. I've seen this so many times, where a young, lovely woman thinks that the only way she can get love is by finding another bed and another bed and another bed. And that was sort of introduced to her at a young age when she was vulnerable. Maybe, maybe it wasn't just physical abuse. Maybe it wasn't just sexual abuse. But maybe some of the most scarring things, abuse, that you can experience is verbal abuse. The kind of abuse that convinces you, convinces you that you are nothing, worse than nothing. You ain't nothing. You ain't never going to be nothing. 
that kind of scarring that takes place that really dictates how you make decisions in your life. I mean, literally dictates whether you go for the job promotion. You go, no, I'm not going to go for that job promotion. Why? Because you're living out a script that was given to you in your youth. God knows that all of us are going to struggle with this. God knows that every one of us are going to struggle with the things that have been done to us. We're going to struggle with identifying ourselves, labeling ourselves, uh, uh, defining ourselves by our past. And God knows that we're going to struggle with that, and so he wants to give us a gift. Christmas. That's the gift he wants to give us. We want to learn this message. We want to internalize what we're going to hear today. Let me tell you why. Because your marriage, your marriage hangs in the balance. If, beloved, listen to me. If they cheated on you back then, and you make the person that you're with pay for that, don't you see how you're letting them write your script? Don't you see how you're letting them dictate your life? Don't you see how you're letting them hurt you, even though they're nowhere near? If, if they told you these terrible things, and you internalize, and I'm telling you, here's an exercise for some of us. You should just think about what you think about. Because for many of us, it just flies under the radar. The kind of curses that you tell yourself, the kind of, in Spanish we would say maldiciones, the, the kind of uh, curses that you would say to yourself that nobody else hears, but that's in your mind. Beloved, it's a script, and it's not yours. God has given you, in Christ Jesus, God has given you a new narrative, a new script. And so we have to get the lesson today of Christmas. We've got to get that lesson in our heart. Because if we don't get that lesson, then our future is going to look a lot like our past. And it's not, that's not what I want for us. So what we're going to learn today is an incredibly important lesson that God wants us to learn that I don't want you to miss out. In fact, I'm going to give it to you before we even get into the text. I don't usually do this, but I really want you to get this message. And it's simply this. What defines us is not what others have done to us, but what Jesus has done for us. Does that make sense? Let's say this together. We're going to say it a few times, but let's say it together. What defines us is not what others have done to us, but what Jesus has done for us. What we mean by this is that you are not who you are based on what was done. Some of you have chosen your sexuality based upon what others have done to you in the past. Others of you are choosing lovers based on what you were told in the past. Others of you are doing things that are compromising your own morals and your own values based upon what was done and said to you. Beloved, 
that doesn't define you. When you, be, when you come to Jesus, you get a new narrative. You get a new definer. You get a new definition of who you are. Your story gets retold. In fact, it's so radical, this new story that you get. It's so radical. Christians, the Bible calls it being born again. That's how radical it is. And my prayer is that if, if you've not been born again, that you would be. And that if you are born again, that you would actually believe what you know is true. Because the fact is, for many of us, while this is true, we don't believe it. Just think about it. Listen, by the end of this message, you're going to come to me and you're going to say, man, that was a good message. Like I have, not because I'm any good, but I have confidence in God's word that you're going to go, that was a good message. And just think to yourself how much better it would be if you actually believed it. Think how much better the word of God would be if you actually said, how does this play itself out in my heart? What are some of the ramifications? What are some of the practical outflows of this truth? Well, we're going to read a story of a woman, a woman who, with no invitation of her own, um, was, I believe, raped and, and then had the person who raped her also had her husband murdered. A horrible, horrible situation. And yet God, even in her pain, God used her suffering to bring about the Messiah. God used her pain to bring... So, beloved, listen to me. Do you think that God could do that with your suffering? Do you think that God could do that with your pain? Of course he can. And so, we're going to look. And you, you have one verse that I want you to see. It's in your bulletin. And it's, it's a simple verse. It's from the genealogy of Matthew. You know, the book of Matthew, the first chapter, that part that none of y'all have ever read, you just skip over because it's so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. You know the part that you skip over? Yeah, it has some real jewels in there, so I'm going to show you this one sentence in verse 6. And it says this, And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And look up at me. Why did Matthew say that? It was enough to say, Jesse, the father of David, David, the father of Solomon. That was enough. Period, end of sentence, fantastic. You did a great job. But he doesn't do that. Well, if we, are, we want to understand what Matthew is doing here, we first have to understand who Matthew is and who his audience is. Matthew is a Jewish man speaking to Jewish people. He wants to let the Jewish people know that their Messiah has come. I just recently went to the mall. It's, in fact, today is my daughter's 16th birthday. Lydia's 16. Isn't that a big birthday? Yeah, 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 yeah. She's awesome. Yeah, there she is. And she's horrified that I said it. And if you look more horrified, I'll make you stand up. It'll get bad up in here. Yeah, no, no. It's terrible. Okay, so back to me. No, everybody look at Lydia. One, two, three. (laughs) It's 
terrible. It's terrible. Horrible dad. Horrible dad, oh Lord. All right. So, so let's do this together. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Lydia. Happy birthday to you. Yay! Right. <laughs> That's terrible. I'm sorry. In advance, I'm sorry. It's not very good, but all right. So. Where was I? In the mall. I was in the mall because we and Lydia, it was, it's her birthday weekend, so whatever she wants, she gets. And so, um, so we're in the mall, and there's this little, uh, little booth, and it's about the Messiah. The Jewish people, have you seen the Jewish people's uh, Messiah, the new Messiah that they have? Or some of them, it's, oh, I forgot the guy's name. He has this white beard. He seems Moshi. Moishi, Moishi, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's the guy, right, that they're pointing to. He just recently died, and, um, and he's the guy that they're pointing to as their Messiah, okay? Now, what, what Matthew is doing is going, no, 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 it's not Moishi, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And he's trying to explain to these Jewish believers the significance of who Jesus is, and that's why he starts off with the genealogy. He has to explain Jesus' pedigree, because back then, you used genealogies like we use, um, like we use resumes. You know how like you have a resume? And have you ever written a resume where you were like, um, where you wrote down like, uh, like, you know, uh, you know, four years worked at, you know, Chase Manhattan Bank. Two years did time for fraud. Like, that doesn't go into your, right? That generally doesn't go into your resume, right? Because when, whenever anybody reads your resume, what they want to see, what you want to project to them is the very best of who you are, right? That's why if you, um, say for instance, if you, let's say for instance you, um, you went to school A, and then you got kicked out of school A because you were partying too much, right? And then just, you know, you, that, that you got kicked out of school A. And then a few years later, like 10 years later, you, you know, you got your, th your life back together, and you went to school B and graduated from school B. Do you ever write down that you were in school A? Never on your resume. Why? Because your resume is made to present you to whoever, the world, to whoever in the world that you want to either find employment with or whatever like that, right? Does that make sense? Okay. The genealogy is used like that. That's why there have been um, literal kings in the past who have doctored up their genealogy because they wanted to make themselves look greater than they were. So Matthew, knowing that this is the point of Matthew, why then is Matthew opening up the closet? Why is Matthew showing the skeletons in Jesus' closet? And he does this over and over. We know because in ancient Hebrew um, genealogies, they did not have women. It, was, it would not have been surprising if 
Matthew had not put any women in this genealogy. And yet Matthew puts five. Why? He's telling us something. Matthew is letting us know something. He's giving us information. He's going into their own culture and he's informing us something powerful. And Jesse, the father of King David, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You see, because David, you would go, if you were reading this genealogy and you read David's name, you would go, oh, now there's a somebody. And Matthew takes a pause and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was with Uriah's wife. Wink, wink. Remember? It's interesting because it's a quote from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're actually going to read it. We see that there was a moment where this quote, Uriah's wife, not Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, Verses 2 through 5, we see it. We see the story that he's pointing to. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof of the palace, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Look up at me. Okay, listen to me. I've heard uh, commentaries that said that Bathsheba was trying to seduce David. Let me tell you why I don't think that that's true. Number one, the Bible doesn't give any indication to that. In fact, the Bible keeps on giving indicators that David was being uh, the evil one in this. Over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It keeps on, and I'll show you some of those clues. Some of those clues you won't care about, but some of them are actually kind of important. And so um, for, for that basic reason, I don't believe that she was being, I thought, I thought that she was being uh, modest, bathing on the roof, going through her purification rites because she had just had her, her uh, cycle and she was purifying herself. And so um, that's the first reason why. The second reason is that she would have to be a mastermind to figure out that A, David is not off in war because they're supposed to be at war right now. David the king is supposed to be with the rest of the army uh, off at war. He's not. The Bible doesn't give us any reasons why. It's just, it's not something she would expect, number one. Number two, she'd have to be a genius in terms of knowing uh, David's biological uh, times that he goes to sleep and wakes up. Because it just so happened that David got up and took a walk on that. And then number three, she must have been waiting there for hours and hours and hours, if that was the case, because she'd have had to wait for David. Even when you know people are going to get off the train at a particular time, don't you have to wait a long time for them? Like, it's not this train, it's the next train, or, you know, whatever. There's a lot of things that go in play. I think that Bathsheba is the victim on this one. She's just a woman who's going through her... And by the way, that's not universal by any means. I just uh, had a, a minor disagreement with one of our um, uh, leaders. It was like, no. She was like, you know, and it was a woman, and she was like, she was like, nah, she was, she was complicit, you know, she was like, you know, being sassy about it. And so, so there are, and that's, and that's fine um, if you believe that. I just don't see that in the text. 
One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof, on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba. Look at me. The Bible is giving us clues that David um, should have known better. Listen to what the messenger says. The messenger says, she is Bathsheba. And he literally gives her her father's name and then her husband's. If that, if that wasn't enough, her husband, and you'll see why. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah. There it is, Uriah's wife. She's Uriah's wife. Oh, by the way, who's Uriah? Uriah is one of David's best friends. He's one of David's best friends. He's not just a guy in his army. Uriah's in the army, and here's how it broke down. It was David who was the king, and then there was these three guys. They were called the three. They were called the three. <laughs> they're so creative, those Hebrews, right? So, like, um, they're three guys. They're called the three, right? And the three, interestingly enough, are... They have stories at the end of Samuel. They have stories about them that you could hardly believe. Um, great warriors, fantastic fighters who were part of David's uh, personal bodyguard. And then there was the 30 or 31, 30 or 31, I can't remember. And out of this group of people, that's where Uriah is. These guys are as close. These guys are the secret service of David. They, they would gladly give their lives for David. They've devoted themselves to David. This is David's personal bodyguards. You can only imagine, as a king, you would only allow the most trusted people in the world to allow them, because, right, if, if your bodyguard's no good, then, you know, you're, you're as good as dead. These guys would give their lives for David. The messenger comes in and goes, oh, David, hey, hey, Uriah's wife. David had the time to, number one, look at her. And, the, you know, it's not like he, he sent a text. He had to get somebody to come over, say, find out who that woman, what woman? You know, the woman, the woman that lives there. You mean on top of that house? No, not that house, that house. You mean that house? Yeah, that house. Go over there, find out who she is. Who are you? Run back. Oh, that's Uriah's wife. David goes, bring her to me. Bring her to me. She has no choice. None. David sends someone to find out about her. She's Uriah, the Hittite's wife. Verse 4. Then... Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She didn't sleep with him. He slept with her. Now she was, and this is the part about the purifying. She goes, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, meaning that this is like the most fertile time for her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and said word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. Listen. This woman's husband is away. 
She's trying to keep herself ritually pure. She gets taken advantage of by this man in power. Then, and we can't read the rest of the story, then the guy, and I'm, I'm sure she felt responsible all of her days. David finds, finds out that she's pregnant. He concocts this entire scheme. It's crazy. He gets Uriah out of the fight and tells him, hey, Uriah, come here. Gets Uriah drunk. Uriah has not been with his wife in a really long time. So he figures, I'll get him drunk and then send him home. When he goes home, then he'll sleep with his wife and he'll never know the difference. You know, she'll go, oh, honey, surprising turn of events. You know, I'm pregnant. And he'll never know. That's what David, it turns out that Uriah is more honorable drunk than David sober. Because Uriah goes, Uriah goes outside, um, doesn't go outside. Uriah leaves the king's presence and sleeps with the king's servants because he had taken an oath. An oath not to be with his wife until the troops come home. It's a, it's a, it's a thing of solidarity. Guys, we're, not gonna, we're in this war together, and we're not going to taste pleasure until we all come home. Uriah stays there, refuses to go against the vow, against his brothers. David invites him to stay another day, gets him drunk again, and he refuses to go. Then David writes a note. It's literally his death note. He's carrying his own death warrant. And the death warrant says, he goes, give this to the commander, Joab. And he goes, I want you to put Uriah in the hottest place. You know, the place where the fight is hottest. And then I want you to pull back. And I want him to die. Let him die as a, a hero of war. And that's exactly what happens. Word gets to Bathsheba. And now she not only feels the guilt and the shame. And this is one person who's done this to her. And wait, it gets better. Then he calls her to be his wife. And she has no power to free herself from that either. How would you like to be that person? You see? <coughs> Bathsheba had an enormous amount of things done to her that A, were not her fault, and B, were tragic, devastating, and felt hopeless. But her, def her definition wasn't found in those things. God, had, God would give the Messiah through her and the first baby that she has, oh, and the third tragedy that happens to her is that her first baby that she has outside of Uriah with David, the first baby that she has, he dies. Now, I know some of you grew up in homes where you go, oh, um, you know, when something bad happens to you, you think back to something bad you've done in the past to say, oh, God must be punishing me for the bad thing. Could you imagine how that must have happened to her? Hashimasta, oh my gosh, this is all my fault. Listen. She goes through tragedy after tragedy, difficulty after difficulty. 
But God was using her pain and her suffering, even her abuse. God was using it so that not only she could get the gift, the gift of having Solomon. She has this wonderful gift who, who then becomes the king, the guy. He becomes the one in power and protects her and, and provides for her. He's the one who loves her well, but through him would come the greatest Christmas gift, Christ himself. Beloved, what defines us is not what others have done to us, but what Jesus has done for us. Because Jesus himself laid down his life and died, you know, and died for the penalty of your shame, the penalty of your guilt, the penalty of your sin, the penalty of what you deserve. Because he's done that, you no longer have to walk around with the old identities, with the old things that have defined you. You no longer have to be named by those things. In fact, you're liberated, you're free. She does not have to. She is given a different role. Oh, she's in the lineage of Jesus. Because Jesus would be called by the authorities to themselves, physically abused, and killed, and killed. But Jesus would submit himself to these authorities knowing that those of us who would believe in him would find new life in him. If your whole life, that's what you've been doing. If your whole life you've been defining yourself by what has happened to you, I'm giving you an opportunity for a clean slate. I'm giving you an opportunity to not go with your old record, but to follow and have a new record bestowed upon you, that of Christ. That is the gift of Christmas. The gift of Christmas is that we get to start Again, the gift of Christmas is that we get a new opportunity. The gift of Christmas is that no longer are we defined by what was done to us, but rather what Jesus has done for us. Beloved, beloved, if you let this sink deep down into your soul, you'll never be the same. Think about this. Think about this. For those of us who think, um, oh, I'm never going to try to start that new business. I'm never going to go back to school. I'm never going to uh, ask for that promotion. I'm never going to, um, I'm never going to uh, give myself and wait for the right person. I'm just going to take whatever comes right now because I'm, not, I'm, you know, I'm never going to find anybody who's going to treat me well. Beloved, that gets erased because you recognize, oh, wait, Jesus has taken his perfect record and placed it on us. That means all the sin and all the things that were done to you are placed on Jesus. And all his grace and perfection and beauty is placed on you. What does that mean? That means you no longer have to defend yourself. You no longer have to become uh, or have to be um, hypersensitive. It means that whenever anybody accuses you, you don't have to overreact. You see, if, if in fact 
you don't have that old identity and your new identity is in Christ, then you're the beloved. You're the loved. You're the one who has been given and sacrificed for. You're the one who has been pursued and forgiven. Beloved. What that means is, let me tell you what that means. That means the next time your wife comes up to you and says, you know, you're always this way. You never do this. You always act like this. You don't have to. Husbands, listen to me. You don't have to defend yourself. You can come into it and go, gosh, I could see how my sin has hurt you in the past. Could you tell me more? Could you tell me more? Knowing and recognizing that Jesus Christ has washed you from those sins, so it makes you empathetic, not defensive. It makes you want to hear her hurt, not convince her she's wrong. You see, when your identity is changed, you no longer have to function with those old narratives. And those of you who are, you know, uh, good night, right? Like we, we have so many people here who are from addicted communities. And it's for some of us, we go, oh my gosh, I'm just going to relapse because that's what I do. That's what I do. I'm going to relapse. I'm just going to, I'm going to go back to what I used to go back to. Because there's no, you know, that's all I know. No! You now know something new. You can now run to Christ. And that doesn't have to. And so you go, Jesus, here's the truth about me. The truth about me is that I prefer crack over you. But Lord, would you make me prefer Christ over crack? Would you make me enjoy Jesus? Could you right now, the, the negative feeling that I presently feel right now, the loneliness, the fearfulness, the insecurity, the boredom, the, the hatred, the bitterness, would you right now, would you, in a real way, would you comfort me, bring me delight, find others, help me to find others who will help me to find that delight in you? And then you don't, like, three seconds later go, well, I tried that, and then move on. You actually believe it, and you live in it, and you wait on Jesus. For they that wait upon the Lord, for they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. You see, if we actually believe that the gift of Christmas is that Jesus comes himself to take away our sin and to bestow his righteousness upon us, then, then whenever you start telling yourself, you ain't never going to be able to do that. You, you kidding me? After all your mistakes, after all your failures, after all you've done, you ain't never going to be able to do that. You'll be able to say, wait, 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 wait. I am not, that is no longer my identity. And Jesus, the fact is, is I've pursued these things for selfish gain. But Lord, would you give me a new vision, a new way of doing life so that I might pursue the things that glorify and bring you joy. And then let him change your heart as well as how you pursue it. You see, if we believe, if we believe, the truth of what God's word tells us, it'll change us. And listen to me, that will be the gift of Christmas. That will be you recognizing the beauty and the wonder of what God has given. Because what defines us is not what others have done to us, but what Jesus has done for us. Could you imagine what it would be like if you actually believed that? I'm telling you, tomorrow at work, it'll be much, much better. Today, when somebody disrespects you, you can go to Jesus and go, Jesus, I know that they're disrespecting me. Lord, would you remind me of how much you love me, of how much honor you've bestowed upon me? I'm telling you, 
your life will never be the same. Let's say this together. What defines us is not what others have done to us, but what Jesus has done for us. Now, I want us to change us with me. Can you do that? All right, let's do it. What defines me is not what others have done to me, but what Jesus has done for me. Yes. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you. I thank you for instructing Matthew to put down Uriah's wife. I thank you for reminding us of this story. That while others can do terrible things to us, others can harm us in ways that we are broken and devastated by, that you give us a new identity. And Lord, that we would be a people who not only receive that deeply, but offer that generously. That we would not only believe that you have changed our identity, changed our script, changed our narrative, but that we would share, we would share that with others. And that you would, and that you would change them as well. Help us to believe what you just said. Help us to believe your truth and walk in it because you're worthy of that. For we do pray in Jesus' name, amen.